Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America by Christian Williams. This is part one of two parts of chapter six entitled Police Autonomy and Blue Power. The ongoing history of police anti-labor action seems at odds with the growth of militant police unions in the latter part of the 20th century. Nevertheless, the police have organized unions, and in many cases their unions occupy a central place in the constellations of local political power. In addition to advocating improved wages and working conditions, prosecuting grievances, and forestalling or sometimes preventing discipline against individual officers, the unions also have a strong hand in the creation of public policy inside and outside their respective departments. Few changes in public policy or security policies can be made without the tacit approval of police unions, and the officers' associations are routinely consulted on changes in the criminal code or in city policies that might indirectly affect police work. When controversies arise concerning the police, their actions, or their role in the society, it often falls to the unions to detail the law and order perspective. The organization's agenda may then dominate the debate, or even define its terms. This influence has been hard won and always controversial. The police union's development, between the end of the 19th century and today, has been tightly braided with changes concerning standards of public morality, the shape of municipal government, race relations, and, of course, class conflict. Embedded within every strand of this cord, exposed with every tangle and snare, lies a question about the nature of democracy and about the role of police power in a democratic society. From strike breakers to strikers, and back again. Beginning in the late 19th century, police in many cities belonged to social organizations called either Patrolmen's Benevolent Associations, PBAs, or Fraternal Orders of Police, FOPs. The two types of organizations functioned along similar lines, providing their members insurance and promoting their overall health and well-being. The main differences were that, whereas the PBAs were only open to patrolmen and were strictly independent, the FOPs were open to any officer and were affiliated nationally. Both groups petitioned for better working conditions, an effort that the authorities tolerated so long as there was no move toward unionization. The rank and file crossed the line during World War I, when a steep rise in the cost of living pushed several organizations to apply for charters from the American Federation of Labor. In a break with its previous position, the AFL granted the charters, and the police unionized in several cities, including Cincinnati, Washington, Los Angeles, St. Paul, Fort Worth, and most famously, Boston. Unhappy with long hours, low pay, favoritism, and the sorry condition of their station houses, on August 15, 1919, the members of the existing police association, the Boston Social Club, voted to affiliate with the AFL. They thus created the Boston Police Union No. 16 of the American Federation of Labor. Less than a month later, on September 8th, Police Commissioner Edwin Upton Curtis responded by suspending 19 union supporters. The strike began the next day. Approximately three-quarters of the Boston Police Department joined the strike, creating a politically uncomfortable situation made worse by rampant crime and widespread disorder. Almost immediately, small crowds gathered around craps games on the Boston Common. By the evening of September 9th, the disorder had escalated to the point of looting. Rioters overturned parked cars, and numerous gang rapes were reported. Some rowdies took the opportunity to settle scores with striking police. Crowds gathered at station houses and pelted the strikers with mud, rocks, bottles, and rotten fruit as they left the building. A South Boston Vigilance Committee was formed and tried to keep order, but its volunteers were savagely beaten. 
The rioting ended when 3,000 State Guard troops, SCAB police, and a Provost Navy Guard unit broke up the crowds. The State Guard killed three people in the process, including one bystander and one person who was fleeing. A fourth was killed as the soldiers broke up the craps games on the common, and two more died when the militia attacked a group of boys trying to steal a manhole cover. By September 11th, eight were dead and more than 70 injured, 21 seriously, several of them children. More than $300,000 in property had been damaged or stolen. On September 12th, the striking patrolmen voted unanimously to end the strike if only their suspended colleagues would be reinstated. Instead, Curtis fired all the striking police. The state guard patrolled until December 12th. Following the strike's defeat, many states passed laws forbidding police unions, and the AFL revoked the charters of all its police locals. Isolated from the rest of the labor movement and lacking political support, the new unions were crushed in city after city. Local governments then raised wages so as to remove any incentive for reforming the unions. Immediately after the strike, the starting salary for Boston police was increased to $1,400 per year. Only a few months before, it had been as low as, three, as $730. Between 1919 and 1929, Police wages increased by 30% in Detroit, 50% in Chicago, 70% in Los Angeles, and 100% in Oakland. By 1929, the patrolmen earned between $1,500 in Cincinnati to $2,500 in New York, which put them on par with most skilled laborers. This strategy worked to neutralize rank-and-file organizing throughout the 1930s, restricting their activity to the lobbying tactics of the early PBAs. But in the 1940s, unionization was again on the agenda, and by 1944, the AFL had police unions in 168 cities. In the name of preserving their neutrality, police departments generally responded to this new wave of organizing in the same way they had before, barring the organizations and firing union supporters. In the 1950s, after the NYPD defeated a transport workers' union drive by offering the officers concessions, Commissioner George Monaghan established Rule 225, quote, No member of the police force of the City of New York shall become a member of any labor union, unquote. He reasoned that the rule was necessary, quote, to protect the policemen from influences or commitments which might impair their ability to perform their duties impartially and without fear of favor, or might tend to weaken or undermine the discipline and authority to which they must necessarily be subjected, unquote. Appeals to the neutrality of police are questionable, given their historical use against strikes and unions. Monaghan's second reason probably comes closer to the truth. Unionization was seen as a threat to the authority of police commanders. Whatever the justification, restrictions against unionization proved ineffectual, and some commanders were forced to try other approaches in order to preserve their control. In 1941, the AFL supported an FOP organizing drive in the Detroit Police Department. The department harassed officers who supported the drive, fired its leaders, and procured court orders barring unionization, but half of the patrolmen joined the organization anyway. The next year, however, the FOP lost ground when the Detroit Police Officers Association, DPOA, was formed with the backing of police commanders. Carl Parcell, who served as the DPOA president in the late 60s, explained, Quote, it started out basically a company union under their guidance, under their control. They gave you the rights at their pleasure. Unquote. Things took a different turn in New York, though a similar strategy was in evidence. 
The PBA sued to protect itself from Rule 225 and won. The court found that the department could bar, quote, organizations of policemen affiliated with non-police labor associations or offered, officered by non-policemen, unquote, but could not interfere with the PBA's activities. The distinction became relevant in June 1958 when the Teamsters publicly announced an effort to unionize the police. The announcement put pressure on the PBA leadership to produce results, and it also gave police managers an incentive to cooperate with the PBA rather than face the stronger muscle of the Teamsters. A Journal American editorial suggested, quote, The surest way of slapping down Hoffa would be for Mayor Wagner, Commissioner Kennedy, and the representatives of the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association to begin exploring methods by which such grievance machinery would be set up with proper safeguards all around, unquote. This is more or less what occurred. After the Teamsters' drive was defeated, PBA President John Cassess set about winning gains for his organization's members. By 1961, lobbying, lawsuits, and job actions, including ticket speed-ups and slowdowns, had won the PBA a dues checkoff, protections against management retaliation, and a formal grievance system. Two years later, Mayor Robert Wagner, whose father had authored the National Labor Relations Act, extended collective bargaining rights to police officers, and the PBA won better wages and retirement benefits as a result. In exchange, the PBA agreed to a no-strike clause and a bar from affiliating with other unions. The leaders of the police associations, PBA and FOP alike, were only too glad to protect their positions from the competition of the Teamsters or American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSCME. But no strike provisions proved more difficult to enforce. The authorities learned this the hard way in 1967 when the Detroit police staged a sick out nicknamed the Blue Flu. A year later, the Newark police did the same, and the Chicago cops threatened their own Blue Flu epidemic. In 1969, the Atlanta FOP organized Operation No Case, in which the police issued fewer tickets and overlooked minor offenses. The next year, Atlanta officers repeated the tactic without union approval, initiating a 10-week slowdown. The trend continued throughout the 70s with strikes in Baltimore, Cleveland, Memphis, and New Orleans. When faced with a walkout or slowdown, the authorities usually decided that the pragmatic need to get the cops back to work trumped the city government's long-term interest in diminishing the rank, the rank and file's power. The Detroit sick-out provides an interesting illustration of the forces at work in these conflicts. The action began in May 16, 1967, with a ticket slowdown. The police continued to pull over speeding motorists, thus technically enforcing the law. But they issued, warrant, they issued warnings rather than citations. Overnight, the number of traffic tickets dropped to one-half its previous level. Between May 16 and June 14, the number of tickets was down 66.9% compared to the previous 30 days, and 71.5% relative to the same period a year before. It's estimated that the effort cost the city about $15,000 each day. On June 6, the DPOA escalated the conflict when its members voted to stop volunteering for overtime. The following week, police commanders responded to this disruption by suspending 61 officers. Then, on June 15, 323 cops called in sick. DPOA President Carl Parcell denied that the action constituted a strike, but said, quote, 
Policemen for the first time are joining the labor movement. They're beginning to think and act like a trade union, unquote. The city filed a lawsuit against the DPOA, instituted emergency 12-hour shifts, and alerted the National Guard. The strike not only continued, but grew. On June 17, 800 of the city's 2,700 officers were absent. Of these, 170 had been suspended, 459 were sick, and 15 cited family emergencies. As the conflict escalated, each side grew increasingly eager to find a resolution, and on June 20, a tentative agreement was reached. The next day, the police returned to work. The proposed agreement granted the DPOA changes in policy and discipline, and established a grievance procedure, but it was not at all clear that the fight was over, or which side would prevail. All non-economic issues were settled, but there was still the matter of wages, and the deal had to be approved by the city council. The tension persisted. Commanders had only a tenuous grasp on the loyalties of their subordinates. But then a funny thing happened, the Detroit riot of 1967. With the black community in open revolt, the cops, the city government, and local elites very quickly rediscovered their previous affinity. In bringing the labor dispute to a close, the specially appointed Detroit Police Dispute Panel noted, quote, Far more than the interests of the police officers themselves is involved. As has become obvious in recent months, the police force is th the first line of defense against civil disorder, unquote. The cops got their raises. In contrast to the defeated strike of 1919, the labor skirmishes of the 1960s and 70s solidified the positions of the police associations and had the somewhat paradoxical effect of buttressing the top-to-bottom unity of the departments. The unions asserted increasing levels of influence over departmental policy, and the police management used unions to win rank-and-file cooperation. Such management union partnerships reinforced the institution's cohesion, allowed disparate parts of the organization to develop a community of interests, and provided a means for settling disputes and resolving grievances. But they retained traditional taboos against autonomous rank-and-file action and meaningful expressions of solidarity with other labor organizations. Whereas the Boston strike had been ignominiously defeated, the Detroit strike was resolved in a way that strengthened both the department and the union. Clearly a lot had changed during the intervening half-century. The relevant differences were not limited to shifts in policing and labor organizing, but also concerned the overall character and function of municipal government. The Death of the Machines During the early 20th century, progressive era, police departments were subject to a battery of reforms, changing the institution's structure, aims, and personnel. These reforms were not motivated by concerns about racism or brutality so much as they constituted one part of a general effort to reinvent urban government. It is not hard to see why reform was needed. Under political machines, there was little to distinguish an official's personal attachments, interests, loyalties, and obligations from the duties, responsibilities, powers, and benefits of his office. Authority rested as much in the informal and decentralized ward networks as in the government itself or the offices of the various municipal departments. Positions were filled strictly along partisan lines or as personal, personal favors. There was no pretense of professionalism or impartiality. Discipline was lax, corruption was sanctified, and bribery was a major source of income at every level of the hierarchy. 
in this context, it was the job of the police to protect illicit businesses, extort money from honest citizens, rig elections, and otherwise enforce the will of the neighborhood bosses. So long as they were successful in these central tasks, it made little difference to the machine bosses whether the cops engaged in petty crime, neglected their legal duties, were rude in their encounters with the public, or used violence unnecessarily. As a result, police legitimacy was sorely lacking. This problem was aggravated by a long series of scandals implicating departments around the country in organized crime and other types of corruption. For example, at the turn of the century, Los Angeles Mayor Arthur Harper, police chief Charles Sebastian, and a local pimp formed a syndicate in order to monopolize prostitution in the city. The police were used to suppress competition and protect the syndicate's operations. In 1912, Herman Rosenthal, a professional gambler, accused the New York City police of protecting gambling houses. He was murdered on his way to meet with the district attorney. The next year, San Francisco papers revealed that a group of detectives had recruited a gang of con men, offering protection in return for 15% of the total take, an estimated gross of $300,000 annually. And during Prohibition, dozens of Cincinnati cops sold confiscated liquor and offered protection to bootleggers in return for a share of the profits. Such scandals largely discredited the police departments and the machines to which they were attached. But the progressive agenda offered a map towards legitimacy. Seeking to replace the machine system, progressive reformers looked to business and the military for organizational models. Schools, for instance, were reorganized on a corporate model, whereas the police were structured according to a military design. This military analogy provided a positive ideal of what the police could be, a disciplined, hierarchically organized force with the chief holding nearly absolute power. More specifically, the reformers offered three recommendations for change. Departments should be centralized, the quality of personnel should be improved, and police operations should be narrowly focused on crime control, with an emphasis on prevention. Toward these ends, police departments were divided, as far as possible, into specialized unions, units with a streamlined chain of command and an articulated hierarchy. Chiefs were given more control and discipline was moved from external boards, which were deemed political, to internal, professional mechanisms. Civil service procedures were instituted, age and education requirements were established, and character checks and psychological exams were introduced. But the success of the progressive movement was uneven overall. Despite the trend toward centralization and rationalized management, little changed in the areas of policy or procedure, and neighborhood precinct stations retained much of their autonomy. Police chiefs did not, on the whole, receive the lifetime tenure progressives proposed and the police still had a broad range of duties, even after specialization. In fact, contrary to the rhetoric of the time, the police function did not so much narrow as it shifted to meet new demands for social order. Yet modest successes had profound impact on the character of government. Around the country, political machines were beginning to decay. The localized, personalistic, and unabashedly corrupt machine system was giving way to a new kind of public administration. In theory, the new system was very nearly the opposite of the old. It operated legalistically, acting according to general principles and enforcing rules impersonally. City government was becoming bureaucratized. Bureaucratization and bourgeois control Police reforms contributed in several ways to the rise of bureaucracy. 
the narrowing of police function promoted bureaucratic development, not only within police departments, but throughout the city government. As elections, health regulations, licensing, and welfare duties were removed from the list of police responsibilities, other municipal departments, other bureaucracies, were created to take over these tasks. A similar process occurred within departments, as civilians began performing clerical, technical, and related work. The efforts to improve personnel also resulted in increased bureaucratization. Cops were assigned civil service status or military rank, barred from accepting rewards, paid higher salaries, received better training, and hired and promoted on the basis of exams. By rationalizing the selection of personnel and the delivery of services, the new procedures reduced the opportunities for personal favors and patronage, thus cutting machine bosses off from their means of securing support. Centralization, likewise, reduced the importance of the local precincts and undercut an important base for the ward organizations. It also made it possible for such specialized functions as vice control, record keeping, internal investigations, and detective work to be removed from the precincts and assigned to squads controlled by headquarters. By 1930, such squads abounded. Riot squads, prohibition squads, narcotic squads, gambling squads, homicide squads, robbery units, auto theft teams, missing persons bureaus, bomb squads, bicycle squads, motorcycle squads, juvenile divisions, red squads, units to handle particular ethnic groups, records divisions, and internal affairs. This reorganization limited the opportunities for corruption and, again, put power in the hands of the police chief rather than ward bosses or precinct commanders. But despite the specialization, civil service procedures, and administrative centralization, police departments became only incomplete, imperfect bureaucracies. Though governed in principle by general rules, police organizations lacked elements of managerial control implicit in the bureaucratic ideal. Quote, the concept of control adopted by modern management requires that every activity in production have its several parallel activities in the management center. Each must be devised, recalculated, tested, laid out, assigned and ordered, checked and inspected, and recorded throughout its duration and upon completion. The result is that the process of production is replicated in paper form before, as, and after it takes place in physical form." Unquote. This demand was incompatible with the dispersed and highly discretionary activities that characterized police work and made policing a source of power for the state. Officers on the street never approached the ideal of the impartial bureaucrat, nor was there much effort to transform them into such. Rules were crafted, records kept, promotions and assignments somewhat rationalized, but the cop on the beat was expected and required to exercise just the sort of individual discretion and situational judgment denied to his counterpart on the lower rungs of proper bureaucracies. This allowed corruption, prejudice, favoritism, and political influences some amount of latitude on the street, where the police did their work, while limiting these factors in the offices of management where policy was set. The military aspects of reform were just as limited. Some departments adopted military ranks, instituted drilling, and began requiring target practice, but discipline was not established among mil along military lines, in part because of the resistance of patrolmen's associations. In short, cops became neither soldiers nor bureaucrats. They did, however, cease acting as the pawns of the political machines. Reformers quickly learned that this administrative independence cut both ways. Quote, 
While civil service procedures reduced some of the politicians' power over the policemen's working life, they also reduced policemen's receptivity to reform leadership. Increasingly, the police could follow their own lead, independent both of the party organizations and the innovative administrations." Unquote. Hence, while the new system of administration diminished the influence of machine bosses, it did so by bolstering the position of municipal bureaucracies as independent seats of power. While sometimes frustrating reform efforts, this arrangement was not wholly disadvantageous for the city administrators, mayors, politicians, as it let them disavow the police department's excesses without needing to do anything to stop them. If authority was invested exclusively in the police chiefs, then the chiefs would also incur whatever blame was directed at the department, though they faced few consequences of public disfavor. But even the position of chief of police was not necessarily as strong as it appeared, and discipline was generally limited by the need to maintain the loyalties of those in his command. Quote, it is exceedingly rare the ranking police officer can take pos positive charge of police action, and even in the cases where this is possible, his power to determine the course of action is limited to giving the most general kinds of directions. But like all superiors, police superiors do depend on the goodwill of the subordinates. Thus, they are forced to resort to only the means available to ensure a modicum of loyalty, namely covering mistakes. The more blatantly an officer's transgression violates an explicit departmental regulation, the less likely it is that his superior will be able to conceal it. Therefore, to be helpful, as they must try to be, superiors must confine themselves to whitewashing bad practices involving relatively unregulated conduct, that is, those dealings with citizens that lead up to arrests. In other words, to gain compliance with explicit regulations, where failings could be acutely embarrassing, command must yield in unregulated or little regulated areas of practice." Unquote. The protection that the individual officer once received from his political patron was thus transferred to his superior officers. In a formal sense, the police faced more discipline, while in practice, they continued to engage the public or certain parts of it according to their own judgment. Hence, bureaucratization increased the autonomy of the departments as a whole and, ironically, preserved the discretion enjoyed by officers at the lowest ranks. Yet this gap in accountability was not particularly worrisome to reformers of the time. The progressive movement, while often credited with improving the quality of public services and reducing corruption, was not especially concerned with protecting the rights of the poor. Reform efforts were not led by immigrant workers, who constituted the usual victims of police abuse, but by the business and professional classes. The progressive agenda reflected the ideology and interests of this constituency. By promoting bureaucratic reform, these respectable classes sought to ensure their own control over the workings of the local governments. J.W. Hill, an influential reformer in Des Moines, wrote, quote, The professional politician must be ousted, and in his place, capable businessmen chosen to conduct the affairs of the city, unquote. Likewise, I. M. Earle, the general counsel of the Bankers Life Association and a reform advocate, explained, quote, When the plan for a commission government was adopted, it was the intention to get businessmen to run it, unquote. Put simply, the reformers hoped to break the machines and, at the same time, push working-class immigrants out of politics. Because immigrants generally lived together in district neighborhoods, they had been well-placed to influence ward-based machines. 
So progressive reforms replaced districted elections with citywide contests and strengthened the mayor's office to the detriment of the ward councillors. The progressive reforms thus practically limited popular access to government. Meanwhile, other efforts were underway to restrict suffrage, assimilate immigrant children, and regulate the numbers of new immigrants. Progressive efforts encouraged legalistic administration and promoted transparency, but these gains were only really extended to the white, Protestant, native-born, English-speaking middle and upper classes. The transition, then, was from a populist gangsterism to an elitist republicanism. The progressive movement replaced machine politics with class rule. Edward C. Banfield and James Q. Wilson explain this transformation. Quote, the machine provided the politician with a base of influence deriving from its control of lower-income voters. As this base shrinks, he becomes more dependent on other sources of influence, especially newspapers, civic associations, labor unions, business groups, and churches. Non-political, read non-party, lines of access to the city administration are substituted for political ones. Campaign funds come not from salary kickbacks and the sale of favors, but from rich men and from companies doing business with the city. Department heads and other administrators who are able to command the support of professional associations and civic groups become indispensable to the mayor and are therefore harder for him to control. Whereas the spoils of office formerly went to the boys in the delivery voting wars of the, of the, in the form of jobs and favors, they now go in the form of urban renewal projects, street cleaning, and better police protection to newspaper public opinion wards. Unquote. The poor did not control or especially benefit from the political machines, but the machines required their participation and offered them something in return. The emerging bureaucracies of the progressive era, in contrast, were designed to limit their participation. The poor did not control these either, and the new system offered them terribly little. Machine rule was replaced with the more subtle power of the capitalist class. Whereas before local government had been administered according to strictly material incentives, it was now guided by administrative norms and the formal rules of bureaucracy, backed with the moral standards and political ideology of the Protestant bourgeoisie. This victory was ironic in a sense because the progressive rhetoric centered on, quote, taking the police out of politics, unquote, and conversely, quote, taking the politics out of policing, unquote. Though the reforms did grant police commanders a fresh independence from the demands of politicians, the idea of taking the politics out of policing was doomed at the outset, as ridiculous a notion as taking the politics out of government. Quote, Far from being mere administrative bodies that enforced the law, kept the peace, and served the public, the police departments were policy-making agencies that helped to decide which laws were enforced, whose peace was kept, and which public was served. Much like the courts, schools, and other vital institutions, the police thereby exercised a great deal of influence over the process of mobility, the distribution of power, and the struggle for status in urban America. To put it bluntly, no institution which had so great an impact on the lives and livelihoods of so many citizens could have been separated from the political process, nor, so long as the nation was committed to democracy and pluralism, should it have been. 
None of the reform proposals, neither the schemes to centralize the police forces, upgrade their personnel, and narrow their function, nor the appeals to transform them along the lines of military organization, could have changed this situation. Unquote. In effect, the city government was wrested from the grip of the political machines, and the police were removed from the control of the city government, but the bourgeoisie exercised a high level of influence over both the city government and the police. The progressive era saw simultaneously an increase in state autonomy and the full rise of capitalist class hegemony. To understand this concurrence, we must recognize that hegemony is not synonymous with dictatorial rule. It is more subtle, more flexible, and therefore also more insidious and more resilient. It is characterized less by the direct issuing of orders than by the setting of agendas, the framing of debate, the articulation of standards, the valuation of alternatives, and the delineation of available options. It is through hegemony that the ruling class creates a bounded sphere of institutional autonomy. Without need of conspiracies or actual censorship, its ideological ascendancy determines in advance which issues will be raised, which debates will be aired, and ultimately whose interests will be considered and whose rights respected. Professionalization, a conspiracy against the laity. Quote, All professions are conspiracies against the laity. Unquote. Bernard Shaw. Despite the limitations of their actual reforms, the progressives' ideology prevailed, and a perspective that was both nativist and bureaucratic became the accepted view of newspapers, churches, commercial organizations, civic associations, universities, and other opinion makers. It also predictably found an audience among police administrators. A second wave of police reform originated from within the law enforcement. More specifically, it was brought to policing by newcomers to the field. During the 1930s, depressed economic conditions made police work attractive to the large numbers of men seeking steady employment. Police departments became more so active, and the sudden influx of middle-class officers, many of whom shared the values of the progressive reformers, changed the character of the institution. This new breed of officer found their backgrounds and ideals in conflict with the lowly status of their jobs and the ideology of the departments, but thanks to the civil service procedures, they soon moved through the ranks and into command positions. The new police reforms reformers retained progressive assumptions about the purpose of the police, the need for its leaders to be autonomous, and the nature of political legitimacy, but were motivated by their own immediate frustration with the low level of respect accorded the occupation. Despite the previous wave of reforms, the police had remained ineffective and often corrupt. Departments were badly managed, with little forward planning, poor supervision, and no rational division of labor. Though formal standards and bureaucratic civil service procedures did exist, the personnel were poorly trained and generally undisciplined. Faced with these conditions, the new breed sought to professionalize pol policing and thereby raise their social standing. Beginning in the late 1920s and early 1930s, they developed a model of professionalism that achieved prominence in police circles by mid-century. This model emphasized strict admission standards, extensive training, and a high level of technical knowledge, and a devotion to service and a commitment to the public interest. By becoming a profession, the reasoning went, police could improve the quality of their work, raise their standards, and further insulate themselves from outside interference. 
The professional movement overlapped chronologically with the latter part of the Progressive Era, and the new reforms continued some of the efforts begun by the Progressives, finding more success in many areas. For example, they continued the project of reorganizing departments along functional lines, and managed to close more precincts, extending their reliance on special squads and streamlining the hierarchy. While these changes did further diminish the influence of the neighborhood bosses, whose power was already in decline, they often just shifted corruption from the wards to the squads. In a textbook case of failed reform, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley responded to a 1960 burglary ring scandal by replacing Police Commissioner Timothy J. O'Connor with reform luminary O.W. Wilson. Wilson set about professionalizing the department, removing corrupt or incom incompetent commanders, instituting a system of promotions based on seniority and competitive exams, and closing 17 of the 38 district stations, but corruption continued unabated. A 1964 Justice Department report revealed that a score of Chicago cops, including an internal affairs investigator, were running a protection racket. Reformers took steps to regulate the quality of the personnel, using physical examinations, education requirements, character checks, and the civil service process to weed out undesirable applicants. Whether these measures succeeded in improving the quality of recruits is another matter. Critics at the time denounced the professional ideology as elitist, and in many cities the new requirements were used to prevent racial minorities from joining the force. The reform commanders seemed to want to fill departments with recruits whose backgrounds and values resembled their own, but the practical consequences of these changes were not what their advocates had intended. When the economy recovered from the depression, the professional departments had trouble attracting and keeping recruits. The pay had not kept pace with that of the other occupations, prestige was still lacking, and new officers could only enter the department at the lowest level. Since the best cops did not always advance through the ranks, and the worst were seldom removed, stagnation set in. The quality of leadership suffered, and the police became increasingly isolated. Compared to the progressives, the advocates of professionalization had more success in instituting their prescribed reforms, but they did no better in achieving their ultimate aims. The status of the police did not come to equal that of doctors and lawyers, and the departments were only mildly cleaner than before. But the main effect of professionalization was to increase police autonomy, and professionalization, like bureaucratization, not only institutionalized that autonomy, but helped to legitimize it. The discourse surrounding professionalization encouraged institutional problems to be thought of in technical terms, and thus referred to the experts, the police. Issues of accountability and oversight were thus framed as professional matters, with which the uninitiated should not be trusted to interfere. In other words, professionalization sought to take the issues of police power and accountability outside the realm of the political. The move towards professionalization embodied both a continuation of and a reaction against the bureaucratization of policing. The advocates of professionalization, usually police administrators, envisioned their project as an extension of the bureaucratic reforms, with an increased emphasis on the quality of recruits and higher public esteem for the occupation. Carl Clockers argues from this basis that the term professional was primarily of rhetorical value. Quote, the fact is that the professional police officer, as conceived by the professional police model, 
was understood to be a very special kind of professional, a kind of professional that taxes the very meaning of the idea. The distinctive characteristic of the work of professionals is the range of discretion accorded to them in the performance of their work. By contrast, the police view of professionalism was exactly the opposite. It emphasized centralized control and policy, tight command and structure, extensive departmental regulation, strict discipline, and careful oversight. While the professional model wanted intelligent and educated police officers and the technological appearance of modern professionals, it did not want police officers who were granted broad professional discretion. It wanted obedient bureaucrats." Unquote. The rank-and-file officer, on the other hand, had a very different notion of what professionalization implied. Quote, the professionally-minded patrolman wants to act according to his evaluation of the situation and not according to some bureaucratic directive. Unquote. Professionalization very clearly promoted police autonomy, but it was deeply ambivalent about what this meant for the management of departments. Did professionalization only require the autonomy of the institution relative to the civilian authorities, or did it also demand the autonomy of the patrolman relative to the departmental control? In practice, the second followed from the first, as commanders sought to protect themselves from criticism. Rather than exposing abuses and disciplining the officers, internal affairs investigators and unit commanders took their task as the defense of the department as a whole, and especially of the officers under their command. Quote, Most high-ranking officials were prone to praise the efforts of their units and, in the face of clear evidence to the contrary, to shift the responsibility to other parts of the force or other branches of government. If this tactic failed, they were ready to deny responsibility on the grounds that they had few effective sanctions over their subordinates." Unquote. Professionalization, again like the earlier reform effort, continued to put supervisors in the position of covering for their subordinates. At the same time as the professional police were asserting a new independence, they also adopted strategies that increased their presence in the lives of the urban poor and people of color. The professional model encouraged police leaders to take seriously the elusive goal of preventing crime. Making the most of the new squad structure, the police sought to reduce the opportunity for crime, experimenting with vehicular patrols, saturation tactics, and high-discretion techniques like stop-and-search or field interrogation. For example, in the late 1950s, the San Francisco police used each of these approaches in tandem. Chief Thomas Cahill created an S-Squad, S standing for saturation, to be deployed in high-crime areas, with the instructions to stop, question, and search suspicious characters. During its first year, the S-Squad stopped 20,000 people, filed 11,000 reports, and made 1,000 arrests. Most of those they stopped were black people and young people. The preventive aims of the professionals led the police to intervene in situations that had previously gone unnoticed, were ignored, or were not even criminal. This encroachment promoted a generalized distrust on both sides, as police grew ever more suspicious of the public, and the public, especially the black community, grew increasingly resentful of the police. As we have seen, this tension bore bitter fruit in the years that followed. Unionization and Blue Power Today's police unions are the bastard children of the mid-century professionals. Though earlier union efforts had met with little success, 
The fissures and contradictions of the professional agenda helped create conditions that made unionization possible. While the rhetoric of professionalization lent legitimacy to demands for higher pay and greater autonomy, the prescriptions of the reformers alienated the regular officers and produced additional strife with the public. This situation created new tensions within police departments and brought the idea of unionization back to the surface. Though coming as a direct result of the attempts to professionalize policing, union organizing efforts were of a quite different character. The movement for police unions reflected a working class labor perspective rather than a middle class professional agenda and found its support with the mass of patrol officers rather than with commanders. The International Association of Chiefs of Police recognized this difference as crucial and described unionization as sounding, quote, the death knell of professionalization, unquote. <clears throat> the influence of unionization has extended far beyond such basic matters as wages, working conditions, and grievances. Unionization, like the previous two waves of reform, had the general effect of increasing the institutional autonomy of the department and the autonomy of individual officers. But unionization took the latter as one of its principal aims, and for that matter, sought to provide the lowest level officers collective power over the institution as a whole. As the police unions grew, they set about negotiating policy matters, including those governing patrols, deployment, and discipline. The agenda quickly broadened to include, quote, questions of social policy, including which type of conduct should be criminal, societal attitudes toward protest, the procedural rights of defendants, and the sufficiency of resources allocated to the enforcement of criminal law." Unquote. These efforts represented, quote, a phenomenon new to American society, the emergence of the police as a self-conscious, organized, and militant political constituency, bidding for far-reaching political power in their own right. Unquote. The police also returned to open electioneering, like in the machine days, but with a difference. Rather than owing allegiance to their patrons and taking orders from the ward bosses, the police had developed into a constituency for the pol politicians to wow and woo. Police support could make or break a candidate, and once in office, the politician owed his allegiance to the cops, rather than the other way around. Some politicians made the most of the new balance of power, Philadelphia Police Commissioner and later Mayor Frank Rizzo deftly exploited the political potential of the department, building himself a career, while at the same time amplifying the power of the police and increasing their independence. Under Rizzo's guidance, the police department became the unrivaled center and base of his power. It wasn't long before police unions started producing their own candidates, and served in some places as a ladder into office. In 1969, Wayne Larking, who had served as head of the Police Officers Guild, was elected to Seattle City Council. That same year, Charles Stenvig, a former police detective and the business manager of the Minneapolis Police Officers Federation, was elected mayor, having run solely on a law and order platform. Stenvig convinced patrolmen to campaign for him. When an interviewer asked an officer, quote, did you introduce yourself as a patrolman?" Unquote. The officer responded, quote, Sure, that was the whole point. The idea was to convince people that a cop would know how to bring peace back to the community. Unquote. At times, such political efforts, especially electioneering, crossed lines of decorum, 
1964, many departments had to issue special orders to prevent officers from wearing Goldwater or Wallace buttons on their uniforms, or from putting campaign stickers on squad cars. Some cops even handed out campaign literature while on duty. In each arena, whether their efforts involved electioneering, lobbying, or strikes, the police pursued a conservative agenda, specifically one that increased the power, autonomy, and central role of law enforcement. LA's Firemen and Policemen's Protective League, FIPO, represented the direction of the new activism. It lobbied for counter-subversive laws, promoted right-wing rallies, sponsored conservative speakers, and sold businesses a blacklist naming union organizers and radicals. And that's the end of the first part of chapter 6.